Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, the official calendar doesn't say it, but the unofficial calendar says that summer is over. Knox County schools start back tomorrow. Teachers have already been back for a week, but their classes will be filled with students tomorrow. Many of the rest of us will simply go back to work another Monday, where after a weekend, we have to return to our jobs. Work, a four-letter word, right? A word that we don't like so many times. In fact, we have the American dream of avoiding work. That is, the American dream is that we work as little as we can to amass as much as we can so that we get to the point where we can retire and no longer work. That's the goal. The goal is self-sufficiency financially so that we do not have to work. And therefore, questions abound. When can I retire? How much do I need in order to retire? But we need to understand that work is part of God's design for us. Work is not a function of the fall. Now, work did get more difficult because of the fall, but work was instituted by God prior to the fall for our benefit. It is something that is a blessing, not a curse, a chance for us to be creative and to be productive. And yet, as so many other things, we have multiple ends of the spectrum here. On one end, we place such a high view of work that we can become what some call workaholics. That is, work becomes the most important thing in our lives, and we see this often by the way we try to size someone up when we first meet them. What's one of the first questions we ask? What do you do for a living? And then based on their answer, we're making deductions about who they probably are based on what they do for a living. We want to know who they are by asking this particular question. Some find their identity in work. That is, who they are is so wound up in what they do rather than in Christ that when they do retire, they don't know what to do with themselves. And in fact, sometimes feel like they are not worthy. On the other end of the spectrum, we find those who don't want to work or who do go to work but do so begrudgingly. I had a friend some years ago. He's still a friend, but I mean some years ago. He said that his ideal job was for someone to pay him to stay at home with his family. Well, you know what? That's the reality these days. We're being paid to stay home. That's why you have uh, help-wanted help signs all over because people cannot find people who are willing to work. But those who are able to work, and I realize there are always exceptions. There are some who physically cannot work. There are others who mentally cannot work. So I recognize that there are exceptions. But the general rule is that those who are able to work should indeed work. As believers, the question then becomes how or why do we go about doing this in a manner that glorifies God? 
You see, this is part of who we are in Christ, not just for those in Christian ministry. I remind you, we're in the book of Colossians, of course, and I remind you that we looked a few weeks ago at verse 17 that was this general statement. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. Do it in the name of Jesus. And certainly that applies, and that's what we're going to see this morning, that general statement applies to our work life. After all, we spend about a third of our day at work. 24 hours in a day, we sleep roughly eight hours, we have time for our family or, or any other pursuit about eight hours, and then we work for eight hours. And as a result, our Christianity ought to be on display in the workplace. Your being transformed by Christ should show up in how and why you go about your job. Now, the world's view is much different from this. The world doesn't say we work in order to glorify God. The world says we work for ourselves. Again, in order to amass enough money so that we can quit. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Aaron preached in my place. And because Aaron is multi-talented, he not only preached, he sung during the sermon and asked you to sing along. And as a result, I had some who not only said what a great job Aaron did, but asked me, how come you've never done that? How come you've never sung a song as part of your sermon? And to some, I said, the reason is I don't have the talent that Aaron has. And I was told by one who is here this morning, whose name I will not reveal. He said to me, like a father loves a son, I assure you that if you'll sing during your sermon, we will still love you no matter how the song goes. So I've used titles in my sermons before. I've, I've given you song titles that sort of go along with the, the message that I'm preaching. But this morning, I'm going to do what you've requested, and I'm going to sing. Now, this is going to be a little bit different than Aaron, because Aaron's song was a popular hymn that he told the story of. Mine's going to be the opposite. I'm going to sing a song that talks about how the world views work, and that's in contrast to how we're going to view it in our text this morning. This song was originally sung by an 80s rock group named Loverboy. It is entitled, Working for the Weekend. And so that is my song this morning. And if you'll give me the introduction. All right, all right, that's enough, that's enough. We're not really going to sing that song. But we do want to talk about work, and we want to talk about it from a perspective that is not We Are Working for the Weekend, which is a song that basically says what we ought to do is work hard all week so that we can have fun and even romance on the weekends. That is not what this is about. Now, I understand that there are some here this morning who are retired, and therefore, in a traditional sense, you are not working. I realize there are others who are students who are going back to school tomorrow or in the near future, and you too are not working in the sense of gaining a salary. I also realize there are some who do in fact work, be it volunteer or in some other capacity, who are not paid for that, and yet it is still work. The principles we're going to examine from this text are general in nature so that they can be applied to all of these other scenarios. 
Now, every company has certain policies about what's to go on at work, what you are to do and what you are not to do. And so we're going to talk about company policy this morning in the idea of how you and I, as believers, are to work. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we are going to be looking at three principles, three policies for our company work. But before we get there, we do need to deal with the fact that this particular text is addressed to masters and slaves. I will remind you again that we looked at verse 17, and that was this general statement of everything you do, do it in the name of the Lord. And then from that, Paul breaks out into some rules or some household codes. We talked about the wives' responsibility of submitting to their husbands. And no, I'm just using that as a reference. We're not going back there. Then we talked about how husbands are to love their wives and not treat them harshly. And then we dealt with a parent-child relationship, how children are to obey their parents and how specifically fathers are to train their children in such a way that they not discourage them. And then our verses this morning are the third category of household relationships. I realize, again, that we don't have this in our culture, but in that culture, the family was much broader than just the immediate family that we know of today. And so there was this relationship within many homes of master and slaves. So how do we deal with that? Well, we deal with it by finding the closest parallel in our culture and taking some principles. And for us, that would be the employer-employee relationship. But whether we like it or not, slavery was a common feature in ancient culture. You know that very well from your own history class, that it was not only prominent in the first century to which Paul writes, but it was also popular, I hate to use that word, I should use prominent, in our own history as a nation, something that we are still struggling to grapple with. But in the first century, slavery was widespread in the Roman Empire. It is simply defined as one person owning another person so that the former is viewed as property rather than a person. And it was so common in the Roman Empire that upwards of maybe even close to a half of the population was a slave. You could become a slave in that culture by a number of means. You could become a prisoner of war. That is, as the Roman Empire would conquer another uh, area, they would bring back some of those people as slaves. You could also, of course, be born into slavery, or you could come to the point where you were so destitute that you sold yourself into slavery. That is, you willingly became a slave so that someone else would provide for you. And in fact, there is some evidence that a slave in that time had the possibility 
of a better life than a free poor man because he had his basic necessities met. But of course, it was always wrong. And so whatever the exact circumstances, we still find the whole issue of slavery intolerable and rightfully so. So much so that we wonder why Paul, when he's writing these words and parallels in other, in other books, does not address it more specifically. Why didn't Paul condemn slavery? Why didn't Paul call for a, an abolition of slavery? Why didn't Jesus have to say anything about this? Those are the kind of things we wonder. And critics of the New Testament, and critics specifically of Paul, say that because he did not advocate for the abolition of slavery, then he was, in essence, condoning it. But ultimately, we need to understand that the message and the influence of Christianity was such that it would lead to the change of heart of an individual so that that person was indeed freed, not from Roman slavery, but freed from the slavery of sin, and as a result, empowered to live their lives in whatever circumstance they found themselves in. We also need to understand that when Paul's writing these letters, Christianity was in its very, very early days. That is, this was a new sect of religion that had no influence whatsoever. And so Paul is not calling for a, a, a societal overhaul. They didn't have the influence to do that. He is preaching to them about the gospel and how that gospel changes their life. And as a result of that changed life, all of their relationships are now changed. So very much like he did with children, he is actually elevating, I know you may not see it here, but he is elevating the status of slaves even as he is addressing them because he is addressing them as members of the Christian congregation. As he is writing to this church in Colossae, he is addressing the slaves, meaning that they would have been present as this letter is read, and he is giving them Christian responsibility. Now, all of that to say, Paul was not condoning slavery, and neither am I. But he, he did not condone the institution of slavery. He simply tried to share with them how they were to live in the midst of this. He was trying to teach masters and slaves how Christianity regulates our relationships. And there is a classic example here. We've alluded to this already. But there was a slave by the name of Onesimus who had run away from his master Philemon. And you know that name because there's a book of the Bible that bears his name. And that slave had evidently found his way to Rome where Paul is in prison and somehow he has gotten into a relationship with Paul and Paul has shared the gospel with him leading to the conversion of Onesimus. And now as we said at the beginning of this study of Colossae, in all likelihood, Paul is writing both Colossians and Philemon at the same time and sending them back to Colossae where Philemon is a member of this church. And along with these two letters, this runaway slave Onesimus is going back with them. And Paul is saying in Philemon that he needs to treat his former slave as now a brother in Christ. He's really urging him to grant him his freedom while at the same time acknowledging that it is Philemon's uh, responsibility what to do with him. But he is definitely saying you need to treat him as a brother in Christ. Now all of that by way of saying, I understand your concerns when you read these verses. But again, we need to take the principles that we can find here 
and apply them to the closest parallel in our own lives, and that is the employer-employee relationship. And so in doing that, we have some company policies this morning. The first one is this. It comes from verse 22, that we are to obey earthly bosses. Simply put, we are to respect and honor those whom God has placed over us in the workplace. And notice that verse 22 does not qualify this based on the character or personality of your boss. Now, I realize that some of you indeed have this a whole lot harder than I do. I know you think we have this utopian society in the church that everything goes smoothly, and that's not true either. But I also realize that we don't face in a church setting the things you face. We don't face unbelieving bosses who don't care about ethics or morality and just want the bottom line to increase. And so I realize that it's difficult, but I'm simply saying that the quality of your boss does not determine your response. As Christians, we are obligated to obey and honor our boss, not based on who they are, but based on who we are. That is because we have been transformed by Christ and we are in a new relationship with him. That is why we have a responsibility to honor and obey our earthly bosses. Now again, verse 20, notice the scope of this command. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, 22, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly bosses. Even as verse 20 is, is in regard to children and parents, here we see the same terminology used when it comes to our relationship with our earthly bosses. Employees are not to weigh a particular command and determine whether or not they should obey. It is not up to us to decide whether what our boss tells us to do is something we should do or not. It is not up to us to determine whether or not we should comply. We are to demonstrate our Christianity by willingly and even enthusiastically obeying what our boss tells us to do. Now again, I gave this qualification in the previous relationship, but there is a qualification here. The in everything is qualified by the fact that we are to obey God rather than men. So if your boss asks you to do something unethical or illegal or immoral, you have a biblical responsibility not to do what the boss says in those situations, but rather to do what God says. But even then, you are to do it in a way that honors and respects. That is, you have to do it in the right manner and with the right attitude. So the scope of this obedience to our earthly bosses is in everything that does not contradict the word of God. But he doesn't just tell us the scope, he tells us the sincerity of our obedience. Paul is not talking here merely about an external obedience that is not matched by the interior. That is, this is not a grin and bear it kind of thing where we smile on the outside, but we're in rebellion on the inside. This is not the kid who, when told by his parents to sit down, says, well, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. No, this is a responsibility on our part to obey not only externally, but also with the right attitude from the heart. Verse 22 says that we are not to do this with eye service. Obviously, that's a compound word that literally has the word eye with the word servant or slave. We are not to do it just when someone is looking. 
Paul says this is not the kind of service that is just to be a, a people pleaser. Again, that's a compound word, man and to please. And both of these words speak of doing something merely for the sake of pleasing the one who is looking on. And we all know employees like this. I hope you're not one of them, but we all know employees like this who are model employees when the boss is there. But as soon as the boss is gone for a day or two, or as soon as the boss is back in his or her office and not directly overlooking what we're doing, that, that employee no longer is a model employee, but instead they do virtually nothing or they talk behind the back or whatever. Or we know employees who, who will do anything necessary in order to get a raise or a promotion. And companies are full of people who will step on or step over anyone in order to rise to the top. And while, it be, while that is natural for the unbeliever, after all, they, they have no one else to look out for but themselves. And so we would expect them, in a certain sense, to do things for their own benefit. Not so for us, because we as believers are to work for the Lord. And therefore, even while others may be stepping on or stepping over others, we are not to fall prey to that same mentality in the workplace. And again, I know you have to deal with deceivers and backstabbers. I know you have to deal with difficult work environments. And frankly, I don't know how some of you who work third shift do it. I, I couldn't do that. I could not maintain my Christianity working third shift, <laughs> much less work third shift period. So I know some of you have it much more difficult than I do. But notice the reason we are to do this, verse 22 at the end there. It has nothing to do with promotions or raises. It is simply because we fear the Lord. Again, because of our relationship with the Lord. And over and over again, in, in all three of these sections on household codes, we've seen that this is the motivating factor. It's because of who we are in Christ and what we think of Christ. Again, fear here is not cowardly, but uh, it is awe and respect or even worship. In short, because of our relationship with God, we are to obey earthly bosses. The second company policy that we want to notice comes from verses 23 and 24. And here we are reminded that we serve a heavenly boss. Verse 23 reminds us that whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. Again, this is very similar to that statement that we looked at in verse 17. And this greatly diminishes the distinctions that we often make between secular and sacred. In other words, many people believe that the sacred aspects of life are what we're doing now. We gather on Sunday, we worship, we read the Bible, we pray, we fellowship with other Christians. That's the sacred sphere of our lives. And then we check out of that tomorrow morning and we go back to the secular world of work or school as if these two worlds never come together. And Paul is making the very strong case here that, that not only should they come together, they must come together because that is who we are. And so when we go to work tomorrow morning, we don't check our faith at the church. We take our faith with us and we recognize that we have a service to our heavenly boss. Yes, we have an earthly boss that we are to obey, but we understand that ultimately we serve a heavenly boss. And a proper perspective on Christianity in the workplace reveals that every Christian workplace is sacred. That is, whatever you and I do, whatever we're called to do, and here I'm not talking about a, a ministerial calling, I'm talking about whatever you're called to do, 
whether it's blue collar or white collar, office or warehouse, company, uh, a company that you go to or something you do at home all the time. All of these things are impacted and influenced by our uh, faith. And so Paul says we're to do this heartily in verse 23. A word that really means soul. That's really the word that is often translated soul in the New Testament. Which means we're to do this with everything that we are. Work is not just a minor aspect of our life. We're to work heartily in everything that we do. Or as they say in the sports world, we're to give 110%. Christian workers, Christian employees ought to be the best employees. Did you know that the average employee admits, this is what they admit, so who knows what the reality is. The average employee admits to wasting three hours per day at work. And in all likelihood, that survey was done prior to the proliferation of cell phones and surfing the internet. Because that's what we do now many times at work. Not me, of course, you understand. But that's what many of you do at work, wasting time on your cell phones and on the internet. A few verses later, in chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul is going to remind us that we need to redeem the time. We need to make the most of our time. So Christians ought to be the best employees that we can possibly be, serving our heavenly boss, understanding that that doesn't diminish our responsibility to our earthly bosses. Sometimes you'll actually hear pastors say, and if you do hear a pastor say this, run from that church. But sometimes you'll hear pastors say, I don't work for you, I work for the Lord. And that sounds real spiritual. But what they're really saying is, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and you can't do anything about it. You see, in one sense, yes, I do work for the Lord, and so do you, whether you're in Christian ministry or not. But that doesn't negate the fact that God has put earthly bosses and earthly accountability in all of our lives. So I can't be so spiritual that I say, I don't work for anybody else but the Lord. That's not true. I work for you. I'm accountable to you. And you're accountable to your bosses at your work. And so just because we have a heavenly boss doesn't negate our responsibility to our earthly boss. In fact, it ought to elevate it. Because we serve a heavenly boss, we want to obey our earthly boss. <clears throat> and verses 24 and 25 give us the positive and negative rewards of fulfilling these commands. There is some debate in verse 25 about whether this applies to servants or masters. That is, whether verse 25 goes with verse 24 or whether it goes with chapter 4 and verse 1 or whether it refers to both. But the fact of the matter is that um, there are rewards here. There are promises here, both negative and positive. And you, of course, understand, again, this is elevation here. In those days, a slave had no, no chance, no hope of an inheritance and yet Paul is, is encouraging a Christian servant by saying you have an inheritance in Christ. Well, we need to move on to our third policy here. It is from chapter 4 and verse 1, and it is that we are to respect. If you're a boss now, the tables are turned. If you're a boss now, you are to, you are to respect every employee. Here it is addressed to the masters or to the employees, employers. And it says you are to honor your employees. A slave was naturally expected to obey. That part was not countercultural. But here again, we see that Paul is more than willing to go against the culture. Because in that culture, a master had no responsibility toward his slaves. 
But Paul is saying now that a Christian master, a Christian boss, does have responsibility toward, his, toward those who work for him, and that is he is to treat them honestly and to treat them justly. And by the way, this is not just good biblical advice. This is good business practice. I mean, if you honor your employees, if you treat them fairly, they are likely to work harder for you and not jump ship every time another opportunity comes along. So you're going to get better work and a longevity of work, saving you money in the long run if you put the biblical principles into practice. Now, Paul's not concerned here with business practices. He is concerned with biblical practices, and yet we see here that both of these things are true. So he reminds the masters that they too have a master in heaven. So be careful how you treat other people because God is the one who is going to be treating you. And if you're a, an employer, especially an employer that your employees know that you are a Christian, they need to see the distinction that being in Christ makes in your life. Because what a horrible testimony it would be for them to know that you're a believer and yet you command the office or the workplace just like any unbeliever. And therefore, they have no desire to come to a faith that you are not showing very proudly. Now, in saying all that, I want to bring this to a conclusion by, by talking about a further responsibility that's not necessarily in this text, but it's all over the New Testament. As many of you know, I, Tracy and I just came back a week or so ago from visiting our some of our team that is in Central Asia. And uh, because I won't have the opportunity to share the whole story with you at one time, I'm going to try to sprinkle various sermons with, uh, with what we learned over there. But one of the things we learned was how intentional they are in trying to share the gospel with people. That is, when, when Tracy and I would go into a store, we were going in there to look and to potentially buy a souvenir. Our team members who live over there did not have that same mentality. They were going into those same stores. Yes, they might have bought something, but they were going into those same stores to intentionally strive to build a relationship with whoever was working there so that either this time or the next, they could share the gospel with them. So on at least two occasions, we were in stores for longer than 30 minutes, not because we were shopping, but because those team members were sharing the gospel or building a relationship so that they could share the gospel with the workers in that particular building. We were greatly impressed with how intentional our team is in doing that wherever they go. And may I say to you this morning that that's our job too. Our job is to do the same thing. It might not be in Central Asia, but it is wherever you work. Remember, I said at the outset that we spend a third of our day at work, eight hours minimum at work. A third of our time is at work. Now, I am not saying that you need to take company time to share the gospel. I'm not asking you tomorrow morning to call a devotional and say, we need 30 minutes off the clock so I can preach to everybody. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you have to carry a big Bible to work with you tomorrow. But what I am saying is you and I ought to realize that our workplace is our mission field. That is where we know people. That is where we come in contact with people. That are, those are the people that we spend a large percentage of our time with. And we need to go to work tomorrow and going forward with the mentality that God has put me in this place 
in order to impact for the gospel these people with whom I work. So that we ought to be building relationships with a purpose. And those relationships are designed then for us to have an opportunity to share the gospel so that those whom we work with can come to faith in Christ. And that is why it's important how we work. You see, if you don't work any different than the unbelievers at your office, then when you do try to share the gospel, nobody's going to listen to you. If they haven't seen the difference that it makes in your life and how you react at work and how you obey at work or how you lead at work, if they can't see that difference, then when you start sharing the gospel, it's going to fall on deaf ears. But if they can see the difference, they might just come to you. And as the scriptures say, they might ask you the reason for the hope that is in you. So I want us to see our workplace as the place God has planted us as missionaries. That is, we have a mission at work to share the gospel. Not to steal from company time, but to build relationships so that we have opportunities to share the gospel for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. I'm asking you if you'll commit to doing that. Will you commit to praying? And will you commit to building relationships and ultimately commit to sharing the faith with those you work with? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that even in the mundane relationships of life, even as we tiredly wake up in the morning and go to work or school, merely thinking, can I endure another Monday? I pray that you would change our mentality that you would help us to see that even as our team in Central Asia knows they're there for a purpose, that we would know the same thing about wherever we're going tomorrow, wherever we spend our 40 hours a week, that we would be reminded that you've placed us there, not just to get a salary to provide for our family, not just to amass enough money so that we can retire one day, but you've placed us there to build relationships so that we might share the gospel. And I pray that you would lay a coworker on our hearts, that we begin praying for them, looking for opportunities to speak with them, and that we would work in such a way that we are working in the name of Jesus so that others can see the difference is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.